Hello and welcome to Red Business and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Barnes. And I'm your co-host, Brad Ferris. And today we sat down with Brad Shaw, who's the CEO of Interfinancial. He provided some valuable insights on scaling your business, mergers and acquisitions, and getting your business ready for sale. All right, Brad Shaw, CEO of Interfinancial. Um, you've focused on everything, business valuations, merger, acquisitions, strategy, growth advisory, getting investors ready. Um, we do. Hopefully get some really good insights from you today. Did you want to start with your background? Uh, before we get into Interfinancial and everything wonderful they're doing, just yourself personally. Yeah, a unique um, uh, pathway to corporate finance. I'm an engineer and spent uh, 25 years in engineering, procurement, construction businesses, John Holland being one and Wally Parsons and, and another great Australian company in Asenko here in Brisbane um, in, in roles from, you know, working out on the field, building stuff right through to managing three or four countries uh, for Wally Parsons and then I also looked after APAC and Africa for Asenko, um, so looked after large regions of, of um, engineering businesses. And then about five years ago, made a, a pretty big shift in my career and, um, and went into corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions specifically in strategy work. Um, and um, have been doing that for four or five years now and I'm, I'm currently the CEO of Interfinancial. Um, so, um, Why did you make that change? Uh, it's the short part of that story is, is I, I went overseas and did some study um, at a good school and I uh, had a bit of an epiphany while I was away and I guess really uh, at that time in my life and my career wanted to do more of what I liked doing and less of what I didn't like doing and um, sort of uh, found through that course that strategy and corporate advisory and, and, and macroeconomics and finance were all uh, real passions of mine and, uh, and really my career choices prior to that was moving more and more towards that um, and then I took the leap of actually sort of saying right well I want to make a career out of this even though I'm getting a bit old and um, and so um, focused on sort of um, building a network in that area and, and then build a business myself and then and then sort of turn that business into um, oh, you know basically merge that business into into financial and um, and been working there ever since nice so you found what you're good at and then jumped in and started into financial was that by yourself or your uh, business partners as well yeah no just to clarify I didn't start in financial and financial has okay. been around 35 years uh, basically um, my little practice um, I just sort of basically took a couple of customers in and um and and then started working there as an employee um in a in a you know, basically uh, managing the consulting practices um helping the businesses that uh, that inner financials was working with and um and that part of the business grew and and um and then got promoted up to ceo about uh two years ago nice awesome so explain to financial what, what they do what do they specialize in yeah it's, it's interesting corporate finance is the sort of the term that you'd call it um you know mergers and acquisitions advisory is another sort of way to describe the same thing but um some um investment banking is another one but some those terms sort of mean different things to different people and are used in different contexts but look really we're in the mid-market so we help businesses sort of 20 million dollars to to do a $300 million in enterprise value and we help them typically sell their business if we're working on what, on the sell side or we help large businesses um, listed and others um, acquire businesses in that sort of size in the market as well. So we do a lot of transaction advisory work and so basically what we're doing there is project managing the process of, of, of a transaction, of a sale uh, or helping raise equity or helping um, find debt or whatever to help businesses grow. So that's corporate finance, so banking for, for businesses. Um, and to do that, often we have to help 
develop strategies, set strategies and execute strategies because maybe a business isn't quite ready to sell yet or they need to you know, fix some things before they're ready to sell or to get the valuation that they're looking for. So it's a lot of growth advisory. You know, How do we help a business achieve their objectives and their shareholders achieve their objectives? Uh, so it's a super fun field. Uh, we just help really good people in a really important time because I think there's some great businesses out there but it's, 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 it's rare that somebody that's great at a business has also done lots of mergers and acquisitions. And so it's a, it's a really important area for them. You know, it's, they're, they're, a lot of their net wealth is tied up in these things, uh, in these businesses. And, and we help them at a really important time, go through a really important process. Um, and so it's a lot of fun helping those people do that. Yeah. So how many people in Inter- Interfinancial right now? What, and how many, like, uh, in just Brisbane? Yeah, so just based in Brisbane and we're a boutique. So a lot of uh, our competitors might be, they might do audit and tax and financial accounting and those sorts of things. We don't do any of that. We're just specifically M&A and, and growth advisory. And um, we've got about 15 people in our business at the moment. Uh, and we're ranked uh, fifth in the country um, on the uh, as far as M&A businesses in the in the country um which is super great for us um being a small boutique uh you know and some of the businesses that are behind us on that list uh you know our international brands and and probably look bigger from the outside but um we say we certainly sort of punch above our weights with respect to um you know what we achieve um for our customers here yeah that's awesome so on this show we we try and um, tie everything to business which sounds like you're an expert in and and technology um how does technology affect the business valuation uh, in, in a couple of ways, I think that um, if you talk about value accretion or value, um, you know, increasing valuation, I think uh, technology is often a very important differentiator in, in a business, in how well a business does um, and in how well a business differentiates itself from its competitors. Um, and so the valuations of a business in the same, doing the same thing in the same market, you know, if the technology um, advantage is with a com- one competitor over another, then the valuation is higher. And the valuation is higher for a couple of reasons. One is, is that it makes more money if it's a differentiator, because a differentiator isn't a differentiator unless it makes more money. Um, lots of people think, you know, <laughs> that, that uh, differentiation is just, you know, you can say it and it is, um, but mm. it, we, we look at it as from a financial point of view. Um, secondly, uh, if, if, you want to scale your business and grow your business, technology can often un- unlock a lot of that and, and allow you to be um, to, to be able to grow quicker because you're not relying on sort of, you know, the people, um, you know, for professional services, um, you know, they'll, they'll trade it three to five times or something for certain values. Um, if you can productize that, um, if you can productize that um, technology um, into a way where you can sell many and have less people working on it, then you can actually sell a lot more, you can make a lot more money, and you can scale it so an acquirer could buy the business and could see the growth because an acquirer of a business isn't worried about what the business made last year; it's worried about what it's going to make next year. The opportunity and, and how to grow that. So it can be a it can be a value accretion um, um, capability from from a valuation point of view. I think the other side of it is it's a hygiene point of view as well. And so if you don't have the security that you need to have, um, if your board's not you know focused on that, if you've had issues with respect to cybersecurity. Or even if you're just not as efficient as you can be in executing your business because you don't have your technology right, um, basically a buyer looks at a business and says, "Well, you know that business is making five million dollars, but it's going to cost me five hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars to fix all of that stuff, and that's the way I'm going to run this business because I care about this stuff, and so it will just take that off the purchase price, and it'll just yeah, say." Right. I would have given you $20 million, but now I'm going to give you 19 because I need to put a million dollars in to fix it. And so it can be a, it can discount the value of your business if you don't have it right. 
uh, and can increase the value of your business if you use it as a differentiator. Yeah, right. So you look heavily at technology when you're assessing a, a business for growth and if they're ready to sell, for example, you actually look at their technology? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. For technology businesses, you look at the technology a yep. lot. Um, yep. And so there are some businesses that are, say, a software business or those type of things, yes. And, you know, we have a specific um, group of, uh, in our business called IFL Ventures, which which is focused specifically on high IP um rich businesses and, and Graham doesn't Graham McCullough does an amazing job um, in, in assessing the technology and assessing how it, how that technology uh, works in its market and what differentiates it and what its chances of scaling and, and those sorts of things and so there is a whole bunch of expertise that you need to assess technology if you're a technology business so I, I sort of put that in one bucket and then the other bucket is you know if you're buying a business that does whatever it does being you know sell tanks or you know clean uh, schools or whatever, um, then you look at technology, I guess, for, through that sort of hygiene lens of saying, you know, does this business, uh, you know, have the technology that it needs to do what it does? It's not necessarily a differentiator to the valuation of the business from a from a competitive point of view, but it is certainly a, a hygiene factor. And so um, during a due diligence process, which is where you, you look most forensically through a business, so that's after you've decided to buy a business and you've made that commitment, uh, albeit non-binding, uh, then you go through a, a, a confirmatory due, due diligence process we, we would you know we would have probably seven or eight streams that we look through a business you know health and safety financial performance tax uh, legal commercial you know technology would be would be one quality would be another and, and others and so uh, to be honest it, it, it's one of a stream of uh, a, a range of things that you look at uh, but it's not certainly um, you know front and center typically the focus in due diligence is on the the commercial and financial performance of the business and the future outlook for it and those type of things um, but what you tend to get right at the end of a of a due diligence process is you have a bit of a a renegotiation around the value of things, and that's where these issues might come out and say, "Well, you know, you've got a you've got a, a tech debt of three million dollars here, and um, and so that's fine. We're not judging you, but we're not paying you for it either because uh, <laughs> we're going to have to we're going to have to pay for that." Yeah, interesting. So, twenty years ago, most most businesses were very paper based. And, you know, there's just forms everywhere, that kind of thing. Um, and these days, most businesses are in Microsoft 365 or have, you know, SaaS-based applications and are fairly digital. Does that affect the valuation at all, how paper-based versus digital a business is? Yeah, I think it goes to something similar. Um, you know, if, if, if you see a business is unable to grow, um, and typically a paper-based business or a spreadsheet-based business even, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start to – you start to doubt whether you can grow. And really, as I said, you're valuing a business based on, you know, the, the, the usual way that you would value a business is the earnings of the business multiplied by a multiple. And so that multiple is number of years of return. So if I'm paying five times, it's gonna take me five years to get that money back. Um, unless the business grows, if it grows at 50% a year, then that number comes right down and you've paid back the investment in two years or, or three years in that time. Um, but so it's a very, very important uh, lens to look at from an investor's point of view or a buyer's point of view. They're looking at how quickly this business can grow. And most businesses are being acquired for growth, not for steady state operation. And so I think that, you know, the, the pertinent point with respect to your question is, is that if you've got a paper-based system or a spreadsheet-based system, or you've got stuff everywhere and it's not automated, um, you're going you're gonna to see barriers to growth. 
uh, in that business and you're going to devalue that because of that. Whereas if you see a business that's uh, – and that's why software businesses and tech businesses have amazing multiples because you, know, you, you develop one piece of software and you sell it to many and, the, and uh, if it's not too bespoke per uh, application, then you can grow the business really quickly and it will grow. And so I think that it's a – you know, that's an extre- extreme example for a technology-based business. But I think that applies to every business that if, if you can look into a business and see that it can scale and see that it can grow and that technology and paper-based systems aren't, uh, aren't a barrier to growth, then you're going to be more confident and therefore you're going to pay more. And, and so, um, yes, I do think it, it affects valuation. Yeah, it's good advice. I think it'd be very hard to scale a business if you were posting out mail and letters for internal communication instead of messaging over Teams and email and stuff these days, that, that's for sure. Yeah, look, just even the confidence, to be honest, in the due diligence process, um, you know, the due diligence process is you, you create a, a data room, um, a virtual data room, and you pile a stack of stuff in there. Now, if that's a bunch of PDFs that are all over the place or there isn't do- records and documents and all that sort of stuff, it makes due diligence harder. It makes the confidence in the business lower. Uh, it makes the negotiation afterwards more um, critical and so just even that you know basically the 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 process of buying a business takes about six to nine months and if every time through that process you're just seeing poor records and poor record keeping or lack of efficiency or manual processes and all those sorts of things your confidence just drops through Mm. that period and so um, even from just the way you present your business for sale um, I think it's it's important to have those things right yeah if you ask for a document and take it they take a month to get it back to you it's probably a bad sign of uh, what you're what you're buying that, that's, that's for sure so I wanted to touch on cybersecurity it's a big topic we discuss all the time we're big advocates for cybersecurity mm. um, and especially right now with all the recent events going on in Australia it's a big topic as you probably anyone who's open any news outlet <laughs> on TV or phones or whatever yep. is conscious of the big attacks that have happened recently what part does cybersecurity pay, play in business valuation? Um, yeah, so as a CEO, my board is certainly very interested in, in cybersecurity and, and has certainly felt over the last year or two that um, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, I think, is doing a pretty good job of um, giving you guys plenty of things to do. And so uh, <laughs> you owe them Maybe a bottle. last week. Yeah. <laughs> you send them a bottle of wine at uh, the end of the year. But um, so I think that um, boards are really worried about it, shareholders are really worried about it, and that means CEOs and people who run businesses are really worried about it. Um, and so it, it's it's one of those topics that um, comes into the the transaction process where you know, there's a few more questions about it all, all um, they're starting to creep into our processes and probably two or three years ago we, we weren't seeing those questions in there so it is coming to the fore um, I'm interested in that actually Brad. How, how do you um, how do you gauge a business's cyber security landscape like is there uh, like frameworks you ask them for or, or questions you ask how does that work? Yeah, I think that um, you know, there's there's obviously the the standards. The I don't know the number of the standard, but there's you know, there's a standard. Twenty-seven thousand of one. Thank you. Uh, yeah. That uh, that. Um, but we're not seeing sort of you know give us your last audit for that or you know and those types of things. Um, from an artifacts point of view. Um, there's, you know, where are your policies, where are your history, you know, who you, who's your provider. Controls, um, just general controls. Yeah. So it, it, it would be similar content to what's in those questions. I've been through that with our business and, and they're, they're sort of asking the types of questions in there. They're not just saying, oh, if you're certified or, you know, what's your score on that, on that, um, mm. on that framework or anything like that. They're actually digging that next bit down and asking sort of direct questions. And I think the where they're getting the questions from is their own audits that they've done themselves or from providers like yourself or whatever. We haven't seen uh, teams like yours come in to due diligence, but I don't think it's far away where, where 
you know, in, in, in those streams that I talked about, there's a tax person that does the tax stuff. There's a financial person that does the financial stuff. There's a legal person that does the legal stuff. I, I don't think it's too far away where we'll see, you know, a, uh, you know an IT mm. or a cybersecurity expert come in and do it. Um, you know, particularly, you know, I'm working in defence and some other areas that are a little bit more sensitive at the moment and, and then there's obviously a little bit more focus about how that works. Yep. Um, and so, but the, those questions are either from their audit or they're coming from the, the ARCD sort of, you know, they've, they've done a good job, I think, yep. in telling directors, you know, these are the kind of questions you should be asking and this is the kind of satisfaction that you should be gaining and these are, the, you know, the, if you see this, these are the kind of things that you need to do. And, and so I'm sort of seeing, you know, questions coming through data rooms in, in those sort of, from those sort of two areas. Yeah, interesting. And I was going to ask you, like, uh, kind of what are the trends you're seeing um, develop over the past six, 12, 18 months. Um, so you have made a comment about the automation and systems and we were talking about paper-based, but probably more so spreadsheet-based um, companies, um, the change in risk. So are there some, what are the key trends you're kind of seeing in the market that buyers are looking for, sellers are looking at? With respect to technology? Uh, just in general. Oh, right. Um, look, um, there's a bit going on in the world economically, as, yeah. as you may know, um, and some, some stuff going on in Europe that's uh, affecting energy prices, um, and it's also affecting inflation. It's affecting interest rates, and you know, the, obviously, all of those things. So they're they're what's fascinating everybody. Mm. Um, and so, and what that's meaning, I think, is is that there's, there's still a lot of activity around. I think in transactions, when everything's going up in the world, there's transactions for one reason. When everything's going down in the world, there's transactions for different reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think that um, growth is hard to come by at the moment. And so people are sort of looking for growth um, because the returns that they're getting from their base business are, are perhaps taxed a little bit. You know, a year or so ago, it was post-COVID, everyone was flush with money, mm. uh, debt was cheap. And so people were sort of, I think my sense of it was that people survived COVID and went, gosh, we're bulletproof now. If we can survive that, we can survive anything. And they all went away and had a strategy workshop and decided world domination was just around the corner <laughs> and then were, were buying things because money was cheap and they were confident. Yep. And, and so and I think that was, you know, it was a record year in M&A for a lot of firms, in, including ours last year. Um, you know, fast forward to six or eight months later, you know, interest rates have gone up. So so debt is a little harder to get. So that's changing the structure of some transactions. Maybe there's a little bit more uh, equity component. So people aren't taking debt out and paying for businesses in cash. They're saying, oh, you have some of my company and, and we'll, we'll merge effectively or, or, or transact uh, with, with script. Um, and I think also people are a little bit more risk averse. So last year, people were sort of really pressing hard to get things done really quickly. And, and while there's always um, time pressure on transactions, I think this year, if you see a business and you're, and you're going through due diligence and you have one bad month through the due diligence process, you know, buyers are going, oh, hang on, you know, let, let me just have a look and, um, you know, let's give it another two months and we'll see whether it rebounds and then we'll progress again. And, or, you know, those sorts of things are starting to just slow, yep. a little bit more risk averse. And I think that's just in general, um, yeah, it buys a bit of time for the buyer and the seller, to be honest, but also, you know, what's happening in the world is changing so quickly that yep. the reason why you decided to buy something in the first place might not be the reason why... Um, Change you know, throughout that DD process, yeah. Mm. No, that's interesting. Once you get some more of your insights, Brad, um, you probably see this all the time. What's a mistake you've seen of someone going to sell their business where they should have looked out for, you know, something really important, but they haven't? 
Yeah, there's that's a long list. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's maybe um, just like a top two. Yeah, and uh, I think the, the actual the answer is is that you learn something different every time. There's a different, um, and you sort of have to do a thousand things perfectly. And if you do one thing poorly, you know it, it can really cost you. Um, and so, I think that the expectation that you can actually just run your business well for an exit is is tricky. You can you can improve your odds, or you can you know, but it's it's not an absolute. Um, I think that the the thing that we see the most is is that um, I would suggest you run your business with with an investor's lens. And so what I mean by that is often you sit in your boardrooms or your executive teams and you'll be sitting down and if you're a really good business, you're thinking about your, your businesses and your shareholders' return and your people. If you're a great business, you might think about your customers and what they need and what's driving their decisions and that helps you, you know, drive your decisions, which helps you with all with your business and the like. Um, the, the, probably the where I see too few businesses do is have the investor, the the, the person that, that is going to buy the business, sort of either virtually in that room or at least be thinking about what they're thinking about. Because uh, I've seen businesses that have gone and spent ten years growing a, a division of their business and and are so proud at the end of that ten years that they're ready to sell because they've finally got that thing going after nine years of losing money and they've made money and the and we go out to sell it and nobody wants that thing. That they've just spent ten years building, and if they had of ten years ago gone, you know, if I build this thing, will it make me more valuable? Will it make me less valuable? Will it make me more interesting to more buyers or more interesting to less buyers? Am I going to create value here, or am I going to erode value here? And so, if you if you just imagine an empty seat in your boardroom that is the future buyer of your company, that would be probably the single smartest thing that I I could imagine, and 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 that's a lot of what we do at in a financial is actually bring that investor's lens into into your considerations, and a lot of our strategy advisory work is around making sure that um, you know we just consider the future investor uh, in the current decision making. It's really good advice, actually. Like empty seats in the, sounds on so the board. Sim- sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a thing about common sense. Yes. Yeah. It's not all that common. Yeah. I wanted to um, I get, get some more insights around, and this can be like a top two as well. You don't have to speak for an hour on <laughs> things that you recommend or most commonly recommend to businesses to get ready to sell. Yeah, I think that um, we always uh, th- that first one that I just said is the first thing that we recommend. So mm-hmm. take that as as item one, um, and I think that people can get a bit caught up in. Uh, second guessing the buyers, um, so you can sort of you, you can go. Uh, you know, I I need to I need to sell this part of my business or get into this new market, or I need to make those decisions now um, because you know I'm I'm going to get ready to sell in a year or two's time. Actually, what you'll find is is that probably 50% of the time we could almost write down on an envelope who we think is going to buy the business before we go through a sale process, and and we'll be pretty close. You know, it'll be that company or something somewhere similar, but just as often we're actually surprised by where the interest comes and where the strategic value that a buyer would see in a business. And so if you're, if you're going, you know, the only person that's going to buy this business is, is businesses like that, um, I think you can be quite tunnel visioned as opposed to actually opening it up. Um, and so one of the, one of the processes that, that we do a lot 
prior to uh, going into a sale process is we do a market sounding. We actually sort of look at, right, well, who are all the suppliers to this business? Who are the competitors of it? Who are the customers of it? Who might who Who is a private equity firms that have invested in this kind of business before? And prior to even deciding whether to go to sell or not, we will call a couple of those companies up and we'll actually do a bit of a market sounding and saying, hey, are you interested in these kind of businesses? What are you valuing? Why? You know, what's your interest? Where's your strategy going? What do you see in the market and those things? And what that can do is it can really help inform you about who might be interested and why and where the value might be. Um, and so I guess the first thing is to have the investor in the room, you know, virtually. And then the second thing is, is that have a pretty broad view of who might be interested in your business. And and if you've got the time as a business owner or, or a, um, as a board member, spend some time talking to those types of people and build relationships and, and, and do joint ventures with them or, or do bits of work together because that might be actually where the great value comes from and where the great deal comes from. And so um, they'd probably be the two. So typically, when would you start on that journey with a business? Like how long, you know, you mentioned that virtual investor in the room, mm. you know, how long could you potentially be advising on that with the business before they ultimately find that buyer? Yeah, so like most advisors, you say as soon as possible. Um, but yep. I think that, um, you know, everybody regardless of whether they've got an advisor to do that or not, I think you start with the end in mind in some ways or at least have, you know, a few options about the end in mind always. I think you should always sort of be thinking about that investor in the room all yep. the way along. As far as, you know, where we help, yeah, we've helped uh, businesses for five, ten years yeah, through right. that process. And sometimes, um, you know, there's one business that comes to mind where they actually had a professional service project-based business. Um, they had a little piece of internal software that was a fabulous piece of work that was actually helped productize their service. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did a review of it, we said, that's a gem. If you can actually turn yourself into a technology business that sells that, um, you know, that's really worth something. And, and, you know, five or six years later, they got a fantastic outcome. And so um, being able to identify those things early um, and give the, the business some time. Um, but we've done that for five or 10 years at the longest example. Um, and then there are other times that we do it, um, you know, we're going, you know, we've got two or three now where we're where they're going to market probably you know, February, March next year, and we're doing a review of their business now and, and, a, and a pre-sale readiness. And so it just gives you less time to, to be able to do it, but um, it can be done at any uh, So in that example, uh, the professional service businesses, business that you advised to you know, focus on the, the technology, mm. did, how did that come about? Did they tap you on the shoulder or was it a chance kind of meeting at a networking event? Like how, who... I guess if you're a kind of start, well, not a startup, but a but a smallish business looking to grow, you know, yep. you might not have someone in that virtual chair that goes, "Oh, we should talk to someone like Interfinancial at this stage." So, yep. just curious how that yeah, unfolds. So the vast majority of our um, engagements would come through referrals, and so um, you know that's because we build a network, and you know the boards that I'm on, and and that Sharon, our our, um, our chair is on, um, everybody at Interfinancial sort of. Um, speaks about this and and so yep. we we go to owner manager programs and, and yep. train train people up and um, tech groups and all of that sort of stuff and so that helps a, a great deal um, in just planting that you know the, that yep. very seed uh, and then I guess um, other businesses find us through their accountant or their lawyer or something like that that, that they're getting some help for and um, and then they're asking a question that that an advisor or an accountant or a lawyer you know knows that they know a bit about, but would would like somebody that was a specialist and, and that work comes through sort of that, that channel. Yeah, cool. So um, what's next for Interfinancial? Um, a, a lot of time CEOs get um, 
chief vision officer mistaken in their title. What's what's happening next, Fence Financial? Yeah, so it's it's um it's a fabulous question. I think we're um uh, we've got a, a very successful practice which we're really proud of, and I think that what we're what we're doing is uh, going through a transition where we've actually had uh, individuals um, sort of be shining light. Particularly Sharon, our um, our chair, has been sort of the the face of the business, um, and we're corporatizing and and doing what we would advise our our clients to do, which is is that to take a single person risk out of the business by actually making it a combination of people that actually contribute to the outcome. And so that's a really important sustainability goal for us, um, the sustainability of our earnings, I mean. Um, And then I guess for us also, we have the opportunity now uh, that we're more mature to perhaps, um, you know, take uh, a more, um, I guess, strategic in, in role with some of our customers and actually take them on a journey and, and actually be part of that journey a little bit more uh, directly, financially, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're certainly considering things where we might look at you know, fund management or we might look at in investment in, in businesses or you know, actually helping them on the journey. We, we feel like, you know, often we create a lot of value um, and, and we're really proud and pleased for our, our customers, um, you know, and then probably there's an opportunity for us to sort of, you know, captures some of that uh, ourselves as well because um, we've got a, a unique combination of people that, uh, you know, everyone in a financial and a senior role has had a career prior to being in, in M&A and so we both, you know, we have the operational and, and, and execution experience and we, we feel like, um, you know, it's a chance for us to exploit that. Mm, makes sense. I mean, no one really starts out of the gates in M and A. I would say, um, and getting ready to scale makes a lot of sense. And that's what we something that uh, Nigel we do it here at Red. Right when we first started, it was um, hugely led by yourself in, in your name, and now we're you know forty five plus uh, and and growing rapidly. Did you want to touch on that, Nigel? Yeah. Well, I guess in the theme of this, Brad, like we've got a technology business, and as a owner of a tech business, it would be you know not the right thing to ask. How would you, as an owner, get fit if there's two things that you recommend from a technology point of view you mentioned before about the discounting that you you see is there a common theme like is it poor infrastructure like from just from a pure tech point of view you know we we exist to make businesses better through technology Mm. and you know you and i have spoken about a lot of the transactions we worked on you know one mutual client together yes Um, what would you provide as that advice for someone that says look in three years time i want to be fit what should they be doing today from a technology point of view yeah, from a technology point of view, I think uh, the, the hygiene stuff is just a, a no-brainer and that's exactly why it's called hygiene. So, you know, cybersecurity is just an expectation now. It's not a, you know, it's it's not a nice to have. Um, and then I, I think, you know, the you know, clouds and, and getting things, you know, off your premises and getting, you know, the protections and, and the factor authentications and all that sort of stuff, you know, all of that is just what everybody's got. And so if you're not there, the first thing to do is get there, yeah. right, because you just got to get there. Uh, I think that um, beyond that, I think when you're talking about capturing value from a technology point of view or using it as a differentiator, I think that um, if you look out in the market, you see businesses that are valued in, in different ways because of different things. And if you can get um, recurring revenue, you know, subscription-based revenue, um, you know, if you can get the growth profiles right, um, if you can get the amount of, uh, if you can get the amount of effort per sale up, you know, in, in tech businesses, um, you know, Sorry, the, the amount of effort that you need per sale down, so yeah. that the uh, the value goes up. Um, all of those things are all of the things that um, y- you can see in the market that they're valued, and so you follow that uh, principles and you try and sort of emulate those things. Um, then for those businesses that are using technology to do something that isn't purely technology uh, driven business, but is a is a differentiator for you, 
I think that one of the things that I would consider is who's the best person to do that. You know, um, in engineering businesses, we had a lot of software and we did it all in house, and we we were poor at developing software. We were poor at keeping it up to date. We were poor at actually, you know, and we thought it was super awesome. But then when you actually look at how much money and effort you put into it, and what those people who are good engineers or good, you know, accountants or whatever could be doing if they weren't doing this poorly, um, you know, then you'd actually you, know, you go get it done somewhere else and you get it, you know. And so I think that um, you know, having a very brutal and honest look at your core business and what you actually are and, and what your relationship with technology is. Am I a technology company or do I use technology as a, as a benefit for my business? In which case, and even in, within technology, I'm sure you know more than me, but you know, there's, you could be a good software company, but not a good hardware company. Mm. You could be a good hardware company, but not a good integration company, you know, yeah. whatever it might be, or implementer or project executor or whatever. You know, understanding those things properly and knowing in limitations and, and then getting the help that you need for the things that you're not good at, uh, probably the things that I'd, I'd, I'd suggest. Fantastic. Thanks for that advice. Thanks, Brad. You have shared some really good insights and de technology definitely plays a big part in uh, M&A and growth of organisations. So I was really glad you shared that with us. If anyone wants to reach out to you um, and get some advice or they're considering you know, selling or buying a company, how can they reach you? Yeah, our website's probably a good place to start. All our numbers and names are on there and, and email addresses. So um, reach out to me personally if, if needed, but anyone in the team would be happy to help. And um, yeah, Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, Brad. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Brad.